so this is my first ever podcast episode, officially, and I'm here with Kamal, and we're going to be discussing our takeaways and insights on the book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. Um, for conciseness, we'll just call it The Subtle Art, so that'll be our reference. And yeah, let's just get into it. Wait, no, Kamal, you introduce yourself a little bit, just so our audience knows, hopefully. Um, yeah, go for it. Hey everyone, I'm super excited to be here with Swatha today, talking about the salt art of not giving an F. Um, a little bit about me, I'm 17 years old, I'm in Malaysia, I'm currently doing my last year in high school, but mainly I'm working on machine learning and how we can apply that into um, streamlining the medical systems we have right now. So that's a little bit about me. So Swatha, take it away. Alright, okay, so the first question I had for you was how do you personally view and practice your personal growth? Because I know for me, or just in general, right, in society, in the media, we always see overnight successes. And even in TKS at the beginning, we were like, there's so many, like, accomplished people, and that's all we saw. We only see that one fraction of their success, when in reality, that's not what it's really like. And even with change, growth doesn't happen very quickly. So, 100%, I agree. Um, Coming from an Asian background, my mom always compared us to like our siblings, our cousins. In fact, every single family gathering would actually be the season of it's like reporting. So each auntie, each uncle would come up and report. My son did this, this, this. He solved this problem. What did your son do? And, <laughs> you know, as a parent, if you've accomplished less and they would feel sort of disappointed. But obviously, I don't think, you know, if something, if anything, the book has made me realize is that um, your metric for success shouldn't be dependent on other people. So if we take a look at it, let's take an example. Let's say some, you're in school and you're trying to be, you're trying to get better grades than someone, right? So let's say we take both points to the extreme. On one hand, that person does really well and you just can't keep up. So does that mean you will never achieve success no matter how hard you work? Or let's take it to the other side where the person just becomes super bad for your next test and you actually get better. Like, are you going to feel good about that? I mean, maybe it's just a one-time thing where the person just flopped that one test. Then again, I doubt you would also find that same satisfaction, right? So it's all about, like, another thing that's huge in the book is that happiness is a problem. Happiness is not an emotion. It's actually more about your actions. And so the way you mm-hmm. earn happiness or achieve happiness is by, A, solving those problems and having good value. Again, if your value is based on the actions of others, that's a horrible value. Yeah. If you're like, um, how good are my writing skills compared to this person? Am I the best writer? I think this idea mm-hmm. of being the best is actually pretty bad because I know it's everywhere you know obviously a lot of us are super ambitious super driven we want to be the best but what does that actually mean it should be more about right what does that really mean and even thinking about being like the top one percent or top point one percent that's still comparing yourself to others so it's more about what is my what do I look like when I'm at the best version of myself and what are those values and skills that would make me that best version of myself. Like an example that was given in the book was expressing honesty in relationships and things like that. You can't compare mm-hmm. that to anybody else. That's just between your you and yourself. So so true on that. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So many people are too fixated on what others are doing and less about how they can improve. And sometimes that actually drives them into a corner where they're constantly trying to be be as good as that person and a little more. But at the same time, 
if that's how you measure your success, then you're only going to be as good as the person you're competing with, right? Right. You're never going to unlock your potential. You're going to reach the potential the other person has because you're fixated on getting to his level. And you're always going to be unsatisfied because even if you reach that level, there will always be somebody better than you. Mm -hmm. Always. In whatever field you're doing. You can be the best at one thing, but... You know, as humans, we naturally gravitate towards the things we don't have. So it's just a life of unsatisfaction and unhappiness. So Mm -hmm. another big thing in the book was everything is a struggle, but you choose your struggle. So you're always choosing what that struggle is. So what does that mean for you? I think there's so many people that want your attention, so many things that may require your attention. um, But what what we have to do is basically hone down on which ones, which problems we really want to solve. For example, um, say you want to get healthy, so you have to go exercise, maybe get a gym membership, but that in itself actually opens more problems. And you have to think, I mean, is that something I really want to do? For example, a lot of people who adopt a healthy lifestyle, maybe they wake up early, take a cold shower, go to the gym, spend an hour working out, come back, and I've tried that once personally, and it was super tiring. Like I'd be, I'd drop dead by 2.30 p.m., not, not going to lie. So is that really something I want to deal with? So probably not. And that's a problem I chose personally not to do. So instead, instead of becoming a part of, you know, what's popular right now, the 5 a.m. club, I made my own club. It's called the 8 a.m. club because <laughs> that's what worked for me. So uh, I get up, do my cold showers, get to work, do some reflection. 5 p.m., I go for a run. And that's what worked for me. So there's a lot of things that you could do, um, a lot of problems you can solve, a lot of things to struggle with. But life is on a limited edition, so you can't be wasting your time on every little thing. you got to choose the couple things that really matter to you. So a good measure for me of how I choose something that matters to me is thinking, is this thing that I'm doing going to matter in the next couple years? where it may be studying or working out, learning how to code. Is that thing going to be something that I care about in the next couple of years? So that's my metric for what, how do you determine some, if something matters or not? And again, having a good metric of success and just metric of growth is so important and so valuable when making those hard decisions. Because another mm-hmm. thing that's like uh, super talked about is the paradox of choice. The more opportunities you have, uh, the more unsatisfied you can feel because you're, even when you have amazing opportunities, you're always thinking about the things, the opportunities you're missing on. So it's just being satisfied and being comfortable with the opportunities you do choose and being 100% about where you're spending your time so you don't feel like you're missing out on all the millions of other things that are amazing opportunities because everything is amazing, but what is most beneficial to you specifically? And then also with choosing your struggles, I think it was really, I guess, pivotal and kind of a paradigm shift for me when you're talking about amazing opportunities as a struggle, like having a dream job, because a lot of the time, um, and this is a theme throughout the book, we always look at the positive, 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 which is good. You shouldn't be in pessim- like pessimistic, but con- like actually acknowledging the fact that doing these opportunities, having your dream job, and I guess even being in TKS, super amazing opportunity, that it can be a struggle, is so, like, valuable. And I think it really helps you, I guess, process it more and better deal with things. Because, for example, when you're 
saying that is a struggle and you're actively saying that I'm going to choose this struggle, you're not victimizing yourself and being like, oh, I'm in this job and I have to do this. I have to go to this meeting. Mm-hmm. Things like that. You're just like, no, this is my struggle and I'm doing it because I chose to do this. Like, that's so much more powerful to just acknowledge the struggle. Stop trying to put everything is amazing because it can be, but everything leads to its own problems and its own complications. So, 100%. I agree. I mean, um, I don't know if you remember, but yeah. Michael used to say that you don't have to do anything. You get to do it. Right. Um, if it's your dream job and that's a struggle you choose, um, that's something you get to deal with. That's what you wanted. Now, any other problems is something you have to deal with. I mean, um, it's just a part of the process. I mean, that's just living, right? Living, uh, part of the human experience is express, is feeling pain uh, or loss. Um, and that's what makes life all the more valuable. Sure. I think um, you'd agree, especially in the last part of the book, um, where his friend actually passes away, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, and he talks about how Mark Manson, the author, was actually still afraid to keep on living. And it's something that holds back so many people because they're afraid to te- take those ne- next steps and really just go for it, right? Yeah, and the exact quote, I guess, for our audience members. Um, so Mike Manson's, like, good friend, Josh, he had passed away, and he was only 19. He described it as his most transformative experience. And so after his friend passed away, he came to him in his dream. So the last dream he had with his friend, Josh, um, they were in a conversation, mm-hmm. and his uh, he had said, I'm really sorry that you died to his friend in his dream. And he replied with, why do you care that I'm dead when you're still so afraid to live? And Mark Manson said that he had woken up crying. Uh-huh. And as a reader, that was such an impactful and like almost like shocking moment to process yeah. because it's so true. Like it was so like fear. The whole point of that uh, story was that fear is literally pointless, like literally doesn't matter. You shouldn't be afraid of anything because death is in- inevitable in that sense. So why would you let fear be a barrier for you when, like, you know, if you die tomorrow, imagine you're not going to care that you were so scared to, like, reach out to that one person, like, post that Mm -hmm. one piece of content. It literally does not matter in the long run. But we get so caught up in these little things just because of this fear that we have. Hearing, it still gives me goosebumps, by the way. Me too, me too. Like, part of me is, like, tearing up right now, but I I remember uh, back then, uh, when I was younger, yeah. uh, when I was seven years old to twelve years old, I I was super bubbly kid. I I was the most silent kid in the whole classroom. Literally every time, one time I I was at a parent teacher conference. The teacher was telling my parents, "Oh, he's too quiet for a child. <laughs> like there must be something wrong with him." And when I got to high school, it was a culture shift. There was it was different in a way because what happened was in my mind, I'm always thinking. I'm just going to keep quiet. I'm just this bubbly kid. I can't really do much. And then that's when my first English teacher that really just changed my life walked in the classroom. And she looked at me and she said, oh, someone who's fresh out of the oven, come out here and present yourself. I'm like, what? (laughs) I remember the first day, like, I absolutely was like, you know, super scared of public speaking. And I always thought of myself as, you know, I'm not a public speaking person. I'm just going to do my own thing. I remember going up there and I was trying to talk, but the words were just weren't coming out. Like people were saying, dude, I can't hear you. I'm like, and then I came up with a sorry excuse saying, 
uh, yeah, I have a sore throat. But <laughs> that's not the case. I was just super scared. And then what happened the following few, the, the next couple weeks, was that every week she would have me present something in front of the class. Until the point where I got, I realized that why was I limiting myself saying that, you know, I'm just not a public speaking person. That limits change, change in a good way. And that's when I decided, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to do it. So that's when I submitted a form to go for a public speaking competition. And from that point on, like everything changed. When you realize that you're stuck in this box you create for yourself, mm-hmm. you truth is this box you create, you have the key out. But many people don't realize that they have the key on them. Mm-hmm. So when I realized that, I'm like, damn, there's actually so much I can do, but I'm just holding myself back. I mean, I don't know if it's the same for you. Have you experienced anything like that before? 100% so many times. And I'll just reference a quote from the book that talked about this whole concept of limiting yourself because of your identity. So in this sense, by defining who you are and establishing your identity, knowing yourself can be dangerous because it can cement you into a strict role and saddle you with unnecessary expectation. It can close you off to inner potential and outer opportunities. I say don't find yourself. I say you never know who you are because that's what can keep you striving and discovering. So also like you, uh, with my middle school experience, uh, I guess there were a few big things in that sense. So public speaking was definitely one of them because I think most people mm-hmm. do have like a fear of public speaking. So yeah. we had a public speaking class um, in my eighth grade year. And also I was uh, like a student body president and I was in a lot of leadership positions. So I was like forced to step up and speak. So there was this one time in public speaking class where we had a presentation of our choice. And so me being who I am, I did it over plasma, scientific, the state of matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wasn't really expecting anything from it. I was just super interested in the topic. And when I went up to right. do it, it was like five minutes long. And I was so, so nervous. I was so anxious about it. But I had been practicing a lot for it. And while I was doing it, I was like, I have no idea how well I'm doing. I'm just going to keep going, see where it goes. And I was yeah. so shocked like, after I was done. Like, everybody was like, so into my presentation and like so captivated by what I was saying like the teacher absolutely loved it pretty sure she gave me extra points um and like everyone I talked to was like wow I like don't care about plasma at all but because of the way you presented it like it was so interesting like tell me more like I felt like you were like a teacher that I want to learn more from and that was so shocking to me because like people I had like never like held conversations with were coming up to me and being like yeah that was so amazing like were you scared like you didn't even seem scared and I was like oh my god I was so so anxious you have no idea but because I got like I was forced in that position where I had to like just adapt and just had to do it I got that positive reaction and that helped me get over public speaking a little bit more so that was so impactful for me mm-hmm. yeah just putting yourself on the spot like that yeah the way my English teacher did every week I never know what's coming up it'll be, okay, today we're going to present, you're going to come up with a product and you're going to present it to the class. And it's always me that has to be the first one to talk for some reason. But I guess it was all, you know, it was, she had good intentions. And a large part of who I am today was because of that whole year I spent with that English teacher. So that is something like I'm super grateful for. I know. And just having good teachers and having those good mentors that push you into that discomfort is so yeah. valuable like so our directors are always telling us to seek discomfort i know especially michael shout out to you um and it's literally one of the best things that i guess you've ever 
told us to get students to do because we've grown so much from that. Discomfort is what allows us to grow. And another point in middle school was uh, I always liked writing, but I never like committed to it. So then my English teacher, English teachers always being out here putting us into our discomfort zone, was like, hey, you should sign up for this like writing competition. And I was like, oh, I don't have time. He's like, no, just do it. And I was like, okay. I didn't really care about it. I just did it just to do it, just for the sake of like participating. And in that competition, I ended up placing first and I was like oh my god I'm actually like really good at this wow <laughs> and then I was like thank you so much for like forcing me not forcing me but like Bowen telling me to do it because that boosted my confidence and my ability mm-hmm. to write and opened up a new avenue of what I could pursue and what I could spend my time on and again not change my identity because before then, I was just like, I'll just do the STEM subjects, because that's what I've always done. I'll just do, like, the spelling, reading things, because, you know, I, that's what I think I know I'm good at. But when you go into, like, new things, explore different experiences, that changes your identity. And that's so much more powerful to view yourself as somebody who is capable of doing anything versus viewing yourself as somebody who's pointed and only good at a very specific things. Because that hinders your growth when you're just mm-hmm. like, I'm only a STEM person. I'm only like a neuroscience person. I only code. I only write. No, you're someone that is capable of doing anything that can build any skill they want. Yeah. I mean, as long as you put in the work and you just push yourself and we spend the time to figure things out, then yeah. I mean, if you limit yourself in that way, you're creating a silo for yourself. You're not really going to improve. You're just going to focus on that one thing you're good at. And my mom, who works in accounting, she she talks about how these people are so process oriented, saying that, oh, this is my one job. I'm only going to do this job. Uh, it's really, apparently to her, it's really annoying to work with because they, they don't see the whole picture of how the process goes. Right. And if you just focus on that one thing, not really piecing bits of information to form this bigger picture, um, you sort of lose meaning in the work you do. That's my two cents on that, at least. Yeah, I think that's so true. And with TKS, I definitely came in here being like, I'm interested in medicine. I'm interested in the science floors, not really caring about the tech things. I was like, why would I really care about artificial intelligence? I don't know how to code. And I didn't really have any intentions of learning how to code because I was like, I don't need it. But once I got into neuroscience more, there's this field, computational neuroscience. And learning how to program, because neuroscience is edging more and closer to um, being intertwined with computer science, programming mm-hmm. is such a key skill if you want to advance yeah. in that sector. So now I'm like, okay, so I've originally been a STEM person, but why am I holding myself back and saying that I'm not a tech person? Because anyone can learn how to code. 10-year-olds can code. 50-year-olds can code. It's not something that should be uh, like defining myself as something that I'm not. And the other thing was, I was like, I'm not a business person. I just like impacting people, like being able to improve their lives. But the thing that shifted my mindset mindset in that area was that social entrepreneurship can be a tool for social change. And I'm like, if social entrepreneurship is improving other people's lives and that's what I want to do, why would I cut off business as an avenue to pursue? So definitely yeah. so changing. So shifting my mindset. Mm-hmm. Same for me as well. Um, especially before TKS, I was in a one-year business program. I was a pretty business-oriented person because I was so obsessed with the idea of, you know, looking for or, like, getting financial independence mm-hmm. uh, that I closed off pretty much most of my STEM and tech avenues. Um, that's when I saw TKS. I'm like, wait, so I have some experience in doing child rights. I have that social. I have some experience doing business, but 
why did I not think about learning more about where the future is going? So when that's when really TCS just struck for me and I was like, hey, let's just do it. Let's see what what that what I get from it. And I'm sure the experience will be valuable. Like already in the past couple months, I, I stopped giving myself a thousand excuses. Like I always tell myself, you need a thousand excuses not to do something, but you really only need one reason, one good reason to do it. And that was the reason I started coding in Python for uh, every day for an hour for the past couple months. And it's crazy when you set your mind uh, in that sense that what you can accomplish. Mm, I went from not knowing how to write a single line of code to be to be able to being able to actually analyze different data sets, understand what's going on in other people's code. And I'd say in four months, that was pretty that it's success to me. I mean, that's my metric of success, at least. So it, it just blows my mind how that how that actually plays out. And I guess a quote that I heard from somebody else was that your metric of success should not be your end accomplishments, but should be instead how much you grew. That should be your metric of success, your mm -hmm. measure of your growth. Hundred percent. Sure. Yeah. The question of like, are you what zero point zero one percent better than yourself than yourself from yesterday? Because if yes, that could be a metric of success already. That could be success to you. But I think we've gotten some really interesting conversations here, and I'm hoping that our listeners got some really cool insights. But this has been a ton of fun to record with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with yeah. yeah, I totally would love to do this again. But I hope everybody who's listening, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, and thanks so much for tuning in. Yeah. See ya. Bye. Bye.